I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. There is widespread consensus among scientists that the Earth has gotten warmer. One estimate is that the average temperature has increased by about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit since 1880, with two-thirds of this warming occurring since 1975. Globally, the 10 warmest years since 1880 have occurred in this century. Climate scientists agree that this warming is extremely likely to be the result of human activity. The consequences of this appear to be extreme weather, droughts becoming more common and longer, and wildfires like those we've seen recently in Australia and the American West. Addressing climate change is likely to be a central concern of the incoming Biden administration. While there are a range of policy proposals, one of the most popular ones among economists is a carbon tax. Support for this comes from economists across the political spectrum. One of the world's leading experts on the carbon tax is Professor Gilbert Metcalf, my colleague at Tufts University. Gibb has frequently testified before Congress, served on expert panels for the National Academies of Sciences and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and he also served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment and Energy at the U.S. Department of the Treasury in 2011 and 2012. Gibb wrote the 2019 book, Paying for Pollution, Why a Carbon Tax is Good for America. Gibb, welcome to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. A pleasure to be here. Gib, let's start off by talking about the evidence about the warming of the Earth and the human contribution to it. Is there any controversy among serious researchers that climate change is real and largely due to human activity? No, there really isn't. Let me quote from an Econofact memo that Jim Stock wrote a few years ago. Uh, in his memo, he points out that according to NASA, 97% of climate scientists who are active in publishing research agree that it is extremely likely that human activity has contributed to climate warming. So there's really no controversy at all. And what's the evidence that extreme weather and droughts are the consequence of climate change? Well, look, there's no smoking gun, but there's lots of accumulating evidence. Well, there's smoking trees, right? Well, yes, and we even have exploding trees in the wildfires out west. But seriously, MIT scientist Carrie Emanuel has identified clear links between hurricane intensity and climate change. And we know that warming temperatures have reduced wintertime snowpack in California. And this is extremely worrying because California relies on this snowpack as effectively a storage battery for their entire state aqueduct system. So they're in trouble if they lose that snowpack. Many other concerns are economic consequences of these changes in climate. Can you discuss some of these? Well, let me tick off a few. So we know that global average sea level has gone up by a little over three inches since 1993. Well, three inches doesn't sound like that much, Gibb. 
Well, you know, it doesn't. But the way to think about it is imagine if we think about a bell-shaped curve, which is a distribution of impacts, if we shift that curve over just a little bit, all of a sudden the tails of that curve become where extreme events take place, become much more likely. And to make it more concrete, what we, even though three inches doesn't seem like much, what this has led to is high tide flooding events that have more than tripled in the past 20 years. And that's, that's a big problem. The problem is that averages obscure the problem. And then there are health effects of extreme heat, like in the same way that I talked about an increase of 1.5 degrees. That also is a shift of the distribution, and we've seen more extreme heat experiences and their health effects of that, right? Well, that's right. Again, it looks like a modest increase in the average temperature, but it has led in the United States to the number of days with the temperature being above 90 degrees Fahrenheit going up by nearly a quarter. And we know that mortality rises sharply with more persistently hot days. And more importantly, it especially impacts lower income households. So that's a big problem in this country, and it's an even bigger problem in countries like India. So what do we do? As I mentioned, you're one of the foremost experts in the world on a carbon tax. Can you briefly explain what this policy is and how it would work? Sure. It's really straightforward. It raises the price of fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, and oil based on their carbon content. Why carbon? So carbon dioxide, which gets released when you burn fossil fuels, uh, goes up and it accumulates in the atmosphere where it persists for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it is that stock of carbon dioxide, as well as other greenhouse gases that are the cause of climate change. And just to think about that persistence, just think about Henry Ford's first drive in his Model T, Model T car over 100 years ago. Some of that carbon dioxide is still floating around up there. So in your work, you refer to pretty widespread support for a carbon tax by Republicans and Democrats. Is that the case still? Yeah, and it's important to understand why there's support, because it's easy to do, and it's using markets to sort of shape behavior to reduce our consumption of these fuels. So in effect, if you think of how Adam Smith talks about the invisible hand shaping behavior, a carbon tax is a way for Adam Smith's invisible hand to have a green thumb. So what do we know? Well, we know that there's an Econofact memo back from a few years ago that I wrote showing Republican support for a carbon tax. And more recent polling shows that 60 to 70% of the public supports a carbon tax, including a majority of Republicans. So this sounds fine in theory, but in practice, have we seen examples of the successful use of a carbon tax? Well, I wrote another Econofact memo on this last year that talks about- I know, it was a trick question. I read that memo. <laughs> <laughs> so look, we have 30 governments around the world with carbon taxes. And these tax rates range widely, and they go as high as $120 a ton. This is Sweden. And at a price like that, it is simply not economical to burn coal for any use, whether industrial or to produce electricity. So again, it's the market operating through the market to get people to what economists say is internalize their externalities, to get them to act in a way that's to the public benefit. 
Right, is to make firms face the full cost of their inputs, including the cost of damages to society. Now, of course, you're going to worry that, well, won't this be bad for the economy? And I have a paper with Jim Stock at Harvard where we looked at the carbon taxes in Europe, and we find zero adverse impact on GDP growth or jobs. If anything, there's a slightly modest positive impact. So you talked about an invisible hand with a green thumb, but there are other proposals as well for um, a way to address climate change, like a cap and trade system or just outright regulation. How is a carbon tax better than these other alternatives? Well, the main advantage is it's way more direct than regulation because we're simply going to raise the price of things that we want to use less of. And we know that when we raise the price of things, people consume less of them. So that's, the, that's where you get real bang for the buck, if you will. We'll get the, the most emission reductions at the least cost to society. And the other thing it does, there's potential equity benefits because it raises revenue that you can use to offset any higher cost to lower income households. And so that has real fairness benefits. Well, some of the opposition to a carbon tax is from those industries that think they'll be particularly hurt by it. And this would include the coal industry and oil and gas. But there's an argument that's made that manufacturing industries as well would be hurt because they would face higher energy costs. Are these concerns valid? Well, let's look at manufacturing first, sort of as a broad group. I've done a fair amount of research on this and wrote a Econofact memo back in 2017. Look, there are very few carbon-intensive sectors. Most uh, manufacturing sectors use very little energy and are simply not carbon-intensive. Now, it's true, coal and oil and gas will be impacted, but this is really the consequence that if we're going to shift, we need to shift from a fossil fuel-based economy to a zero-carbon economy. And just as the horse and buggy industry got wiped out by the automobile, fossil fuel sectors are going to go away. But no one mourns the job losses in the horse and buggy industry. That you know These jobs just went elsewhere. They migrated to new sectors. And these are the sectors that will be supported by in our move to a zero-carbon economy. In fact, the coal sector itself, even without this, is kind of on the ropes, right? Because fracking has hurt it and, you know, Appalachian coal versus Western coal. Appalachian coal isn't as efficiently mined or as cheap to burn. So there are other consequences for coal beyond just these kinds of issues, right? Well, that's right. As you say, uh, coal is already on the ropes, and, and Trump was unable to do anything to reverse that slide. And my colleague, Steve Sakala, has a nice Econofact piece where he, he really talks about this. But, you know, it, it really does demonstrate, given the political sort of traction of coal mining as a reason to hesitate to act, it really does suggest need for a substantive action plan to revitalize uh, regions that are heavily dependent on coal, like Appalachia. We can't just ignore them and say, well, tough luck. We really do need to do something to help them migrate to a 21st century economy. So you alluded to the distribution of taxes from a carbon tax, and that could help out people. Other concerns have been raised about distributional effects of carbon taxes. For example, do lower income Americans pay proportionally more for energy through heating bills or electric bills or gas for their cars? And then would a carbon tax have a disproportionate effect on them? 
Well, look, there are two ways that a carbon tax affects the distribution of income. One is that it raises the price of things, of energy and energy intensive goods. And, and it is true that lower income households spend a larger share of their budget on energy. So that's, that is what we economists call regressive, meaning it's a larger impact on lower income households. But at the same token, the other thing a carbon tax does is that it leads to lower returns to labor and capital. And recent research has shown that it actually lowers the return to capital. And capital income is predominantly earned by by rich folks. It impacts capital income way more than labor income. So it actually looks like the tax is not nearly as damaging to low-income households as it appears at first blush. And what about people who live in sparsely populated areas who need to drive long distances for work or for their errands or just to live their lives? Well, it's true that in certain parts of the country, particularly the middle parts of the country in the mountain states, people drive a lot. They also have electricity that's more heavily reliant on coal. So they have pretty heavy carbon footprints relative to the coastal regions. And this will be a challenge. But here's another one of the benefits of a carbon tax because it raises revenue. And we can use that revenue not only to help, you know, we can redistribute that revenue in a way that's highly progressive to offset any potential damages to lower income households, but we can also use it to address regional disparities like you're describing here. Have people who have studied the carbon tax or advocated for it discussed that kind of redistribution of the revenues in a way to mitigate the effects on people will be most hard hit by it? There's a proposal from a group called the Climate Leadership Council, which is a bipartisan group with very heavy hitters, both in the Democratic and Republican Party, people like Greg Mankiw and Marty Feldstein before he died, as well as George Shultz, Jim Baker, who were part of the early Bush administration, first Bush administration, who support a carbon tax where we take the revenue and give it back to households through carbon dividends. And this is extremely beneficial to lower income households. It's a pretty popular uh, plan. It's getting a lot of traction and a lot of businesses have signed on to support this plan. Well, along with the distributional effects within the United States, efforts to stem climate change would have quite different effects across countries as well. Governments of countries like China and India have argued that the United States had its opportunity to industrialize and raise standards of living for its citizens, and in so doing, it created pollution. And then the argument goes that the Chinese citizens should also have this opportunity now to raise their standards of living as well. How do you address this argument? Well, they're absolutely right. They absolutely should have the right to raise their standard of living. But we should recognize that much has changed since the United States industrialized. And we now have new lower carbon and zero carbon technologies that didn't exist then. So the cost of decarbonizing is much, much lower today than it was when we were industrializing. But beyond that, Look, developing countries like India and China will suffer the most from climate change, and they recognize that it is in their own interest to address the problem. And moreover, big, an even bigger problem for these countries, or maybe a more immediate problem, is the local pollution from burning fossil fuels that just choke cities like Beijing and New Delhi, and cutting fossil fuel use will uh, reduce that local pollution. Now, that doesn't mean developed countries are off the hook. We do need to step up and help 
these countries would finance. And the Green Climate Fund, which is something I helped to set up when I was at Treasury, is a good example of a way to provide green finance to these countries. How did your experience at Treasury give shape your views about what's politically feasible to address climate change? You know, I think the biggest thing I learned from my experience there was I met with a lot of business leaders, both in the United States and internationally. And it's a common misconception that the business sector as a group opposes climate policy. And that's simply not true. There are many, many businesses that see huge opportunities in zero carbon technologies, whether it's battery storage, solar, new transmission ideas. So I think there's more support in the business community for doing something than, than people would perhaps think. Well, given that experience and, you know, the experience you've had since you left Treasury, working on your book, working, you know, in many high-level forums for this, what's your view of the opportunities open to the new Biden administration to address climate change? Well, the good news is that Biden has made climate change one of the four top priorities of his incoming administration. But look, the problem is challenging, especially when you realize that Politicians have limited bandwidth, and we have some really extremely challenging problems. But there are some synergies here that I think are important to keep in mind. Now, we know that the COVID uh, is a high priority to address this problem. But we also know that local pollution exacerbates COVID in low-income and minority communities. So addressing climate change has positive health and equity impacts. And I think that's something that the Biden administration is really cognizant of. Biden has talked about spending $2 trillion over four years. Now, whether this goes forward with the Republican Senate is questionable, but there's still a lot that he can do through executive orders. And I'll just mention a few. Obviously, on day one, he's going to rejoin the Paris Agreement and once again engage with multilateral organizations like the G20. But we're also going to see things like potentially a clean electricity standard to reduce our emissions in electricity, CAFE standards to improve fuel economy and promote the use of electric vehicles. I mean, right there, that's two-thirds of U.S. emissions. But there are other things that, that we can see the Biden administration doing. And, and I don't think we should take a carbon fee off the table, given the pretty strong bipartisan interest in this idea. Uh, there are a number of bills in Congress. The uh, Climate Leadership Council continues to push this idea. And I think there will continue to be interest in that, uh, especially given the need for revenue going forward over the next decade. Well, these are clearly you know, important, even existential questions. And I appreciate it very much, Gib, that you took the time today to speak with me about these really important issues. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.